Hello and welcome. Today I'm joined by my friend and colleague at Theopolis, James Bajon, who is one of the most unorthodox people I know of on Twitter. He will not follow any of the customs or the conventions of how you actually tweet. So he comes out with these incredible long reflections upon scripture and some of the most insightful threads that I've ever encountered in a Twitter format or even in a blog format. So I'm happy to have asked him onto the show today to discuss a particular long thread that he wrote on the subject of the death of Judas as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke's account in the Book of Acts. Now many people have been troubled by the differences between these two accounts which seem to put the two evangelists at odds with each other and raise questions about the truthfulness and reliability of scripture as a whole. So without saying anything further about that, I would like to put things over to James. First of all, thank you for coming on the show. And then can you tell us a bit about your um, process of thinking through the meaning of these two passages and how to make sense of the differences? Sure, yeah, good to be here. Um, I mean, one of the things which, I, I guess I've picked up on uh, recently is trying to actually, when I approach uh, passages like this, not be too quick to harmonize them and to actually think sort of carefully about the passages as individual accounts and then see exactly what their points of difference uh, uh, are and then try to sort of th think about what that might be telling me. Um, I think, you would probably be the same that as someone who um, uh, believes holds to biblical inerrancy, we would think that if there are two accounts, two historical accounts of a narrative that, that they can't be in complete contradiction to one another. There must be a way to piece, piece them together into a coherent historical scenario. Um, but I don't want that to be all that I try to do when I, find accounts like that I, I kind of see that as um a, a first a first step but not not an ultimate step I, I then want to drill down into what each individual author is is telling me um is that something that you'd kind of go along with as a, as a initial uh, claim yes I think I think one of the challenges I've often found is how to think about a doctrine of inerrancy within our handling of scripture hermeneutically and for me it's been mostly uh, something that provides a limit where if you arrive at, okay, there's a hard contradiction between these two passages and there's no resolution, you know you've taken a wrong turn somewhere. But there are other people, I think, who foreground the doctrine of inerrancy in a way that it makes, it dominates their hermeneutic and it becomes the, the approach that they take to the text so that their concern is primarily harmonizing the text. And I think that's to misuse the doctrine in some ways. There's a confidence that we should have that we take to the text, that it's not going to be at odds with um, other teaching in scripture. And as we study it through in a disciplined and careful way, um, we will find that it is perfectly at harmony with other parts of scripture and that the very differences are inviting our attention and our closer examination. And there I think it leads to a slightly different emphasis upon or way of handling the differences. 
the first approach, I think, sees those as problems that need to be resolved, and it's resolved by harmonization. The second approach takes a fundamental confidence to the text, a confidence in its truth and the fact that it's not fundamentally at odds with other parts of scripture, and then uses that to give us the nerve to actually lean into the differences and to think more seriously about why we have the particular accounts that we have, rather than being nervous and actually trying to draw back from the differences and downplay them. And there, I think the sort of approach that you've laid out is a really good example of how I think that can be done well, um, not in a way that's dismissing um, the inerrancy of scripture, um, but in a way that's placing it within a proper hermeneutic or position within our hermeneutics. Right, and, and is ultimately grounded in the character of the God who we believe inspired the scriptures in, in the first place, in the sense that we believe in a, a God who is trustworthy and who won't give us this revelation, which the more we go into it will ultimately confuse and bewilder us, um, but will enable us, perhaps over long periods of time, to arrive at clear um, formulations of what's going on. And there, I think, we're also dealing with concepts about what is scripture doing when it's doing history? Very often, I think we have an approach towards the text that projects onto it certain conventional ideas of what history looks like. Um, and often those ideas can be very naive. Um, actual historians are a lot more alert to the, the art of telling history. But I think we can downplay the degree of theology that's going on in narrative texts of scripture, the degree to which the framing of the narrative, the foregrounding of particular elements, the parallels with other passages that arises just from the narrative art of the history writing, that that is part of the meaning of the text. The text or the revelation that the text represents is irreducibly textual. Um, the text is not just some clear window that you're supposed to see through to the events behind. It's a faithful witness from a specific vantage point on those events that helps you to see what's significant and salient about them. Hmm. So in terms of the specifics then, so the issue, the root issue, I guess, is fairly well known. Um, Matthew and Luke, um, Luke in Acts 1, have fairly different accounts of Judas's death. Um, Matthew has Judas hang himself in a field which is purchased by um, the chief priests. Uh, meanwhile, Luke has Judas's body burst open, um, lying on the ground in, in a field which is said to be owned by Judas. Now, one of the things which I thought of as I started digging into this was I was intrigued by the account of Absalom who is hung um, or said to hang from branches in a tree um, but is later sort of hacked down from there and, and thrown into a pit and um, I, I having observed that I thought well look there's no inherent contradiction between sort of Matthew describing the fact Judas hangs himself and then Luke focusing more on the final state of Judas, um, where his body uh, ends up and the sort of state he ends up in. Um, so that sort of got me th thinking 
of a historical scenario. And I then got thinking about the fact that both of these accounts seem to have some loose ends uh, inherent in them if you just consider them in isolation. So in Matthew's um, account, you have this oddity that the uh, priests don't want to just pocket, put in the treasury, um, the money which Judas hands back to them. Um, but you, you think, well, if they're not happy to put it in the treasury, why would they be happy to own a field which had been bought with it? And presumably you would get a, a receipt with this and sort of file it in the uh, treasury or, or, or something. Why, why would that be um, an OK solution to the issue? Um, and also, why did the field come to get the name the, the field of blood if ultimately Judas died in a, a bloodless death um, because he, he just hung himself and, and died of strangulation and i then got to thinking that luke gives us very convenient answers to those um questions he he uses the slightly unusual um not unusual but uh indirect phrase that that judas acquired um a field not just the normal term um buy and he also tells us that judas didn't die a bloodless death um he, he describes judas's body burst open in in the field so I, I soon got to thinking that um these accounts well at least in matthew's case it raises some questions and then those questions are answered by luke and you can actually do the thing and vice versa there are various questions raised uh, by luke so i soon got to thinking that historically these are i guess what i'd call complementary um, accounts rather than contradictory accounts they they go together very nicely and i think as we look in the broader framework of those accounts we'll see a lot of other details that actually reveal that the gospel writers or um, in the case of luke the account in acts is they're very alert to some of the thematic issues and how it plays into their broader account of what's going on and that whatever parallels or associations that they're drawing in this particular juncture are not detached from a wider narrative that they're trying to tell and whatever connections there are are not incidental but highlighting some of those themes um, that lie near the heart of their account. Right I mean something which I thought was interesting as I considered the similarity between Absalom's uh, death and the fact that he's said to hang um, and Judas's death were just various other things which go on so um, when Judas arrives to betray um, Jesus Jesus refers to him as as his friend um, which is unique to Matthew's gospel and which is particularly a, a key word in um, in terms of the way David is betrayed by his enemies and I guess foremost among them by Absalom. Um, we, we have even the prophecy, um, I think it's Nathan's, when he talks about how um, a friend of David's will lie with his wives in, in broad daylight, which finds its fulfilment in Absalom. So I found that connection, the way in which both Judas and Absalom are, are friends of a, a messianic figure to be interesting um i found the sort of feigned loyalty to um a king for for selfish ends and the um uh the fact that 
when Absalom is reconciled with David, they, they kiss one another. I, I found those to be some uh, interesting connections. And so I was happy then to think of Judas as um, a sort of Absalom-esque um, traitor to Jesus as the, the Davidic Messiah. That was then sort of something which seemed to work on various levels to me. And that, I think, also ties in with a larger background that you find within a number of the Gospels of Jesus replaying the events surrounding the coup of Absalom, where he leaves the city, he crosses over the brook Kidron, he goes weeping up the Mount of Olives, um, and then there's encounters with people who are ministering to him. Um, There's the um, figure of Shimei who's throwing stones at him, and then Jesus goes a stone's throw away from his disciples in the Gospels. And then his right-hand man, Abishai, wants to go and attack Shimei, and he prevents him. And in so many of these respects, Jesus is walking in the footsteps of his father, David. And it seems within that framework, it's very natural to see some of the connections between specific figures and um, incidents and details of the text because the text itself invites that i think we also have that even in some of the prophecies that are alluded to or the the old testament texts um so jesus refers to uh, psalm 41 verse 9 for instance in john's gospel if i recall um even my close friend in whom i trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me and that connection between David's suffering and the betrayal that he suffers and the betrayal that Christ suffers again invites so many of these different um, wider connections it's all part of a cumulative case that I think strengthens um, seeing Absalom and other characters of that coup within the story of Jesus. Right so the idea would be that we've got independent grounds for thinking that there is David's story being played out within Matthew anyway and then we can sort of plug plug this into it is is that the is that the rationale here yes I think so that when we're dealing with these patterns we're often thinking about the larger story that the gospel writer or whatever the part of scripture we're reading is telling and so for instance if you're reading um, Luke's gospel you're very alert to the way that he is using specific Old Testament background. He really uses a lot of um, the book book of Samuel. Um, That's very prominent, particularly at the beginning of his gospel. And so the figure of Hannah in the temple and the birth of um, Samuel is lying in the backdrop of the birth of, um, or the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, then of Jesus, then the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, the early um, events surrounding Jesus going to the temple as a young um, child. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, there are different things being explored. Um, There's a larger framework within which these specific associations fit. And so we're not just um, flying blind, as it were. We can have a sense of where to look for some of the most promising connections. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that then might 
take us on to Luke. Um, but before we get there, I, I do just want to say I don't want to sort of portray myself here as as the guy who has got typology and intertextuality sorted kind of thing. As as I see myself as very much kind of learning in in this field, and um, part of why I um, as you put it, behave unusually on Twitter, um, is that you you get a huge amount of feedback, basically. And um, I find that just so valuable, especially in the area of kind of trying out these sort of uh, intertextual connections and seeing if they prompt other things in other sort of, yeah, people and on if, if things do or do or don't work. Um, and as, as you say, you, you get huge amounts of that on Twitter, uh, some of which is more useful than others. Um, I was followed uh, a while ago by a guy with the, uh, the handle Satan, and some of his uh, feedback was uh, not uniformly edifying. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, think, I think I've found that um, in my own experience. When we're reading the text, it's so much of a collaborative experience um, we're constantly bouncing readings off other people and looking for feedback and learning from skilled readers of the text looking for confirmation from other people who have read the text before and seen the same things independently that we are seeing or maybe seeing something that bolsters our reading or pushes back or hones it in some way and one of the reasons I invited you on was simply because we have a slightly different reading of these particular details in the text, which naturally provoked my curiosity because I, I very much respect your approach to reading the text. You see a lot of things that I've not seen. And then when I see them, as you show them to me, they can't be unseen. They're very clearly there. On this particular occasion, I had slight differences within great commonalities. And I found that um, I thought it would be an interesting starting point for a conversation about how we go about reading the text and what are some of the ways in which the instincts and the initial connections that we see can become more specific and different associations be assigned. So in the case of um, these particular texts, I've seen the connection with the coup of Absalom very much in the background of the text of Matthew, as you note. But for me, the figure has been Ahithophel. Um, he has been the one that uh, connects with, um, with Judas more than Absalom. And I see the constellation of the details working out slightly differently within the same fundamental um, background narrative. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk about that a bit. Mm. So when we're talking about the characters in the story, Ahithophel is the counsellor of David, his really wise counsellor, who happens incidentally to be the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he goes over to the side of Absalom and counsels him in a way that proves very successful. And it's only as the Lord frustrates his counsel and means and ensures that Hushai the Archite's counsel is heard over his, that Absalom is finally defeated. But that figure of Ahithophel um, looms large within the text. His going over to the side of Absalom is a great betrayal of David. It hurts very keenly, but it's also playing out some of the tragic, um, it's part of the 
tragic consequences of David's earlier sins uh, with Bathsheba. And so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on why you lean towards Absalom rather than Ahithophel. Right. So, I mean, one reason would be that I probably didn't think of it at the time. <laughs> so that, that would be um, first and foremost. Um, it, it did occur to me at some point. Um, I was uh, I was slightly turned away from Ahithophel because um, he said to be strangled rather than to hang in um in the text which i thought was a a slight pointer away and i think i was particularly struck by as i say the uh, jesus's reference to judas as a friend and the way in which i explicitly had absalom referred to as a, as a friend um and a friend who um betrays soon after kissing david so i had a few things that took me more towards Absalom um but I like Ahithophel at, at the same time in that um he hangs himself you know um Absalom's death by hanging is slightly accidental I guess in that there's this beautifully worded passage where he's kind of going along and his head gets stuck and it basically just says and the donkey kept on going you know <laughs> he was left um, hung between heaven and earth and yeah it's obviously a, a very tragic uh, portrayal there of, a, of a, uh, a sad end to a life and so um those were yeah those were particularly my reasons for Absalom yes as I've read it um Psalm 41 verse 9 has been in the back of my mind I generally read that as referring to Ahithophel Ahithophel as the counsellor of David and then thinking about the way that Judas plays in the story as one who goes over and advises the opposing um, people, the chief priests, etc. And that role seems to me to be more like Ahithophel, the counsellor who was once trusted, um, who is now assisting the enemy, than that of Absalom, who's an individual rising up against his father. Um, and then I think the other thing is maybe Stepping back a bit from the immediate connection of one figure with another, there seems to be more going on in Matthew's gospel in the situation in which um, Judas's death is recounted. So the very fact that we have an Acts, an account of Judas's death that is quite removed from the time of Jesus' death, it's placed after his ascension within the narrative. Um, just shows that there's no reason why you need to tell about Judas's suicide where you do in Matthew's gospel. The fact that it's recounted there is maybe worthy of, of note. And for me, it juxtaposes the two figures of Judas and Jesus. Both of them are hanging in some sense. Jesus hangs on the cross. Judas hangs on, um, hangs himself. And there's this juxtaposition of two distinct fates that suggest to me that maybe Matthew has some more theological purpose and then that throws me back to the text of second second Samuel where again you have two people 
hung or strangled. Um, in the case of Absalom, he's hung on the tree. And in the case of Ahithophel, he strangles himself, presumably by hanging. And that hanging of the counsellor and the hanging of the son of David makes me think maybe there's something more going on with the connection here. And that Ahithophel might be more connected with Judas and Jesus as a sort of inversion of, of Absalom. And looking back at the story of Absalom, Absalom's story grows out so much from the story of David. And there are tragedies going on there um, in that David is a Jacob-like figure and the whole earlier part of his life is framed by Jacob-like events, but in very positive, very positive key. And then after his sin with Bathsheba, everything becomes twisted and it takes a very different form. And Absalom is the focal point for all of this. So it's Jacob's experience with his sons, which is a deeply tragic one. So like Reuben, um, Absalom sleeps with his father's concubines. Um, like um, Simeon and Levi, he seems to wipe out a whole house. Um, he's told originally that he's wiped out the whole of the king's um, sons, um, like Simeon and Levi wiped out Shechem. Then he's like Joseph, he's the lost son that the father grieves over bitterly. And he's like Judah, the one that has to, he, he ends up leaving the rest of the brothers and going off into a sort of exile. And in those cases, I think the tragedy of David's house is being played out in the story of Christ, that Christ is taking the sin of David's house upon himself and him hanging on the tree as the um, rebellious son uh, was supposed to be punished is a fulfilling of the punishment of David more generally that we initially see in his son hanging on a tree, which again, I think has lamb references. Um, Absalom is introduced to us as someone who always has to shave his hair at the around the same time as sheep shearing. And then he ends up hanging on a tree by his hair. And it maybe should make us think of the ram caught in the thicket that substitutes for the firstborn. But Jesus ends up being the son of David who's hanging on the tree, um, the righteous in the place of the rebellious. Hmm. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of the, the broader framework. I mean, we're, we're obviously both in, in, the, um, in the region of Absalom's death, aren't we, in terms of um, making links, but just perhaps putting more emphasis on particular characters. Um, a few things. Can I just ask you a question of clarification? Are you talking about the position of Judas's death in Luke when you, you're saying it's after the ascension? Or are you still in Matthew? I'm, I may have misunderstood you. Well, I in, thought... in Matthew, it's in the context of Christ's death. So you have two people hung on trees within the same chapter. In um, Luke, it's after the ascension. It's mentioned in the context of the choice of a new... Um, a new apostle in Acts chapter one. Yep, yep. Um, so maybe that could 
bring us on to. So when I had tried to think, what is Luke doing here? I I was keen on looking for um, a sort of uh, type standing behind what Luke is doing, which uh, exaggerated the differences between Luke and Matthew. And so I thought to myself, okay, in Matthew, um, this sort of field ends up in Judas's possession, really due to a bit of a, a technicality in, in temple law. Um, but Luke focuses much more on Judas's love of money. He, he uses this specific phrase, the wages of unrighteousness, which is used in the New Testament only otherwise of, of Balaam. And it talks about the wages which he earned sort of through uh, unrighteous gain. And I then thought about the fact that it is Luke who focuses on the uh, bloodshed and the bloodshed, which is sort of spilt on the ground. And I then was thinking, well, is, is there a particular um, person in terms of Old Testament prophecy who I can think of who, um, you know, is moved by um, uh, materialistic gain and, and consumed by that and who basically sacrifices a man's life to get some land which ends up stained by blood and that then took me in the direction of Ahab um now you, you've gone in a a very different direction there I don't re recall who you likened Luke to um was that uh Joab that you went for there yes um my reasoning was that Luke makes a lot of use of Old Testament um background so mentioned already the importance of the book of Samuel within the gospel. In the book of Acts, I think stepping back from the narrative and just seeing its larger shape, there's, there are great similarities to the books of Kings. And the book of King, First Kings begins with David is on the scene, but he's about to leave, he's about to die. And he needs to establish a successor teach him concerning the kingdom and the kingdom is going to be established with the new temple being built with Solomon gaining wisdom with um, a new regime being set up in backward or backwards order from that and Acts chapter one has a similar flavor to first Kings chapters one and two David's about to leave the, leave the scene he's establishing his successor and then certain people need to be removed from off office in the story of first kings it's um joab being replaced by ben Nair, the son of jehoiada and then priests being removed and shimei has to be dealt with and we see a similar thing in the case of judas being replaced among the 12 and the two verses that are quoted the um imprecatory psalm verses let his habitation become desolate let another take his office really reminded me of what's going on in um, the replacement of Joab by Ben-Nai, the son of Jehoiada. And I was thinking about that in terms of the larger arc, where the next chapter, the church is given the gift of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, the new temple is being built, the kingdom is rise, rising to its great height. This is a new um, temple building context. It's a new Solomonic period, as it were, being initiated as the kingdom is being introduced through Christ and then 
the character of Joab stood out to me because Joab is perhaps the greatest example, to my mind, of betrayal by means of a kiss. So in the story of Amasa, he deceives Amasa by a kiss and then stabbing him in the stomach so that his guts come out. And then Amasa is placed in a field where he's bleeding out and people are passing by and seeing him and then the battle's going on. And it seemed to me that Joab in 1 Kings chapter 2 is removed from his office. He's buried within his desert location. Um, again, he's someone who flees to the temple. Um, he's taken from the horns of the altar and then he's killed. And what happens to, to Judas is a sort of inversion of um, what, or it's a repeat of what happens to Amasa at the hands of Judas or at the hands of Joab through his betrayal. And so the fact that his guts spill out, spill out it is a sort of poetic justice upon the Judah, the um, Joab figure, who is the great serpent within the house of David. And now the greater David has another serpent within his house, and he is removed in a way that shows a sort of lex talionis um, approach to the person who rises up against um, the true Davidic king. And so that was my process of reasoning. Hmm. So, I mean, if you, well, one question I, I would have is whether there's a need to choose between the two. I mean, it seems to me quite widely acknowledged that if you wanted to think about different Old Testament characters who are embodied and sort of relived in, in the life of Jesus, there would almost be um, no end to them and everyone would be very happy having sort of multiple uh, types of people um, finding their culmination and finding fulfilment in the, in the life of Christ. And I kind of wonder if Judas would be uh, or could be seen as a sort of prototypical enemy of God's to embodying just whole whole strands of, of Old Testament thought in that sense. It does feel to me as you read the Gospels that almost as soon as you start getting hooked onto one particular uh, incident, like at the start of, say, Luke, almost as soon as you start getting very plugged into the Samuel narrative, you get something else um introduced and and the gospel writers seem to um like doing that having sort of multiple illusions rather than having lots of you know or rather than following one character very uniformly and so um i suppose i would, I would wonder do you think we have to choose and if not do we sort of then get into a dangerous position where everything is a picture of everything kind of thing. And as soon as we open any passage in the Gospels or anywhere else, we're just sort of bringing the whole Old Testament to it. And then we're just lost in this sort of scene, which we can't navigate anywhere at all, because behind every page, we've got um, the fall, we've got Exodus, we've got new creation, we've got like the, the <laughs> full Monty. Um, so yeah, thought, thoughts on those. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a very real concern. I think if everything is connected to everything else, at a certain point, it doesn't mean anything. It just becomes this morass of interconnections. What we need to do, I think, is think more carefully about what the authors are doing with those connections, how those connections are serving a greater theological argument. And the parallels aren't just, oh, this is like that, isn't that neat? But there is a broader argument being made here that's part of the gospel or whatever text it is. Now, I think we're helped in that, in the fact that the Old Testament has all of this going on within itself. This isn't some novel thing. And often Christians have tended to approach typology and figural reading as a bipolar thing with the Old Testament pole and then the New Testament pole and seeing in, or actually the New Testament pole just being Christ and what he does and looking in the Old Testament for parallels to what happens in Christ. And I think that's fundamentally an incorrect way of going about it. Rather, what we see in the Old Testament is constant interplays between the stories that are going on within it. Um, David is constantly playing out the story of Jacob, as I've already mentioned. Even within the Old Testament, um, in a single book, we can see this played out. We can see the way that um, the descendants of Abraham, even within the book of Genesis, are playing out his story again. So that desire, I think, to move, jump directly from the Old Testament to Christ leaves us vulnerable to those sorts of weak connections. Whereas if we're thinking about a joined up narrative where everything is moving from the Old Testament, where things are interconnected into the New Testament, where things are interconnected and the authors are making careful arguments, there's a lot more of a discipline that we're bringing to that process of seeing connections. For me, I think, for instance, you mentioned Matthew's account. Matthew is also doing a lot of work with Jeremiah in that part of his text. So there's the potter's field and other references to that. And the importance of that background is focusing on the blood being laid, brought into the temple itself. Everything is being contaminated with this blood money. And it's hearkening back to the story of Jeremiah, where there's also the, the purchase of the field in Anathoth, and the way that that serves as a symbol of the promise of new life after exile. And the purchase of fields is a big theme within the New Testament. I mean, clearly within the book of Acts, you have the sale of Christ um, by Judas, the money used to buy a field, but then you have other people who are taking money used to buy fields, um, used from the sale of fields and putting it at the apostles' feet. And so there's an inversion of that theme. If we go back through the Old Testament, we'll see that theme cropping up on various occasions, the, the purchase of significant fields, um, the field at Shechem um, purchased from Hamor, um, and more significantly, the, in chapter 23 of Genesis, the field and cave of Machpelah. Um, and so I think trying to join these things together can be a means by which the arbitrariness and the 
the sheer agglomeration of connections can be whittled down a bit. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's important to note the way in which in Old Testament history, um, we've got these repeated patterns um, and the Exodus is obviously one that you've written on um, before and is a, is a very well-known one, um, the way in which there are multiple exits from Egypt or from foreign territory um, with the enemies defeated and, and with plunder as as um, benefit from the battle and, and so forth. And um, I think what that does is that sort of introduces us to the cyclic pattern of history, the way in which God works in certain shapes, in a sense, to make what he does comprehensible to us. So he's not just this unpredictable God who, who could do any old thing, but has certain patterns of working. And when we think that we're sort of introduced into that sort of thing as history, first and foremost, in the Old Testament narrative, I think that's important because then intertextuality isn't then just a case of sort of seeing neat ideas in an author's mind. Um, it is kind of seeing patterns in the very fabric of history, which its divine author has put there and has put there for reasons as part of his story and as part of his making a um, an intelligible world for us to uh, exist in and for us to uh, interact with and to use scripture to help us um, to help us understand and interpret. I think that way in which intertextuality helps us to interpret is crucial and one of the illustrations I found helpful here is from Rabbi David Foreman who refers to the Old Testament typological backgrounds within those stories as a sort of counter melody. So when you're listening to the text, what you're trying to discern is not just the melody of the surface of the text, it's its own account, but what counter melody corresponds to it. So when you're reading the story of David, you're reading it alongside the story of Jacob and all sorts of things start to come out with an extra piquancy. They just have so much more power to them because you're beginning to see Jacob's story is being replayed in a different form here. And both the similarities and more significantly often the, var the variations um, are highlighted by the counter melody. So when we're reading the story of Jesus against the backdrop of the coup of Absalom and the betrayal of David, we're hearing lots of things in the text of Matthew and even in Acts that we wouldn't hear otherwise. And that discipline, I think, is one that requires a, a sharp ear, but there is a discipline to it that means that it's non-arbitrary. You'll find people consistently settling upon these same readings, skilled readers, because they're coming at the text with a set of instincts. They're used to the way that the text goes about these things. And they're hearing consistently the same thing. And that, I think, has, a, for me at least, it has a confirming power. But I'm not just imagining this. Other people are seeing these connections. And we can have conversations like this where 
we're weighing up different approaches and um, trying to elaborate the fundamental connections that we both see. And that I find um, reassuring, but also it's not a science or a straightforward method, but there is very clearly an art here and it can be done well or it can be done poorly. And that recognition of counter melodies um, moves us beyond the idea of just playing out patterns again and again, that this pattern is like Jesus and it's just playing out again. No, this pattern is like Jesus, but its significance is found also in the fact that it is unlike Jesus. Um, it's that similarity indifference that makes it important. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. I've found multiple textual connections, which I've noticed in scripture, in rabbinic works. So sometimes midrashic things or, or sometimes just rabbinic expositions, um, you know, more exegetical um, work. And that I have found to be um, hugely exciting and confirmatory insofar as you have two people, um, you know, I read in a hugely different environment to, let's say, someone writing about scripture in a, a sixth century um, midrash or, or something. And so we're hugely removed, but looking at the same text and making similar um, connections and similar exegetical maneuvers. And so I, I like that a, a great deal. I, I find that I find um, that when things are confirmed in antiquity, I find that to be particularly useful. Um, something I wouldn't mind coming back to is, this idea of not being lost in a complete morass of possible connections. Um, one thing I like to do as a sort of antidote to that is to um, identify, if I can, just very small scale um, kind of local interconnections, which sort of don't try and do too much. So they're not a theory which explains everything but something that just makes quite a specific small scale um connection between two texts so something i looked into recently was the battle scene at the end of the book of judges um there is this horrific incident in judges um 19 which is then um reported to israel in um i would say a very tendentious um, way by a, a Levite who's um, involved in it and then we get this battle ensuing which is sort of unusual you think Israel are the good guys and yet they start losing the battle and you start wondering why um, and so something which I've uh, found helpful to shed a bit of light on that is a connection between the the numbers the numerical properties of those accounts now um, I won't go into it exactly, but basically when you start digging into the numbers there, um, you find that in the battle scenes, you have at one point just a, a sort of figure of 1,100 people just sort of appearing without any great explanation. Um, and then at the same time, you have sort of in a different account of the same battle, you have 900 people who are just sort of unaccounted for and it's left left hanging um, at the end of the whole story. Um, and so you have these unexplained figures of 1,100 and 900 people. And 
that then has a very specific um, connection with Judges 17, where at the end of Samson's story, the text just sort of suddenly launches, uh, it moves back in time a good few hundred years and just starts with that explanation, a new narrative. And you suddenly have these uh, figures of, you have 1,100 shekels mentioned without any explanation as to where they've come from. They're just sort of there in the narrative and it's assumed that the, the people who are talking about them have just presupposed them. Um, and then at the end of that uh, little incident, um, you have 900 shekels just unaccounted for, like 200 are used and um, it's said that one person will give the other person the remainder, but it, it's never again mentioned. So these 900 shekels are left sort of floating in, in midair. And that, that's, um, now I've got various ideas as to why I think there's that connection there. But um, that's, if you like, the, the data that I like. Um, now, what we do with that is a further question, you know, how, how we take that forward in, t in terms of interpretation. Um, but I like noting things like that. And in a sense, I like just leaving them there. I, I don't want to sort of sculpt some great theory where 1100s all over the Bible have this particular significance or where 900s always have that significance. Um, you know, there's 900 iron chariots at the start of the book of Acts and I don't, I don't see any clear connection with them. Um, rather, I, I just like the small scale way in which those two narratives at the end of the book of Judges are, are tied together. Yes, and what that helps you to do, I think, is also make a lot more sense of why would we actually have the account of chapter 17 of Judges? And the more that you follow that particular line, the more it opens up the integrity and the unity and the, the argument that's theological argument that's being made by the book. And I think that strengthens the reading, among other things. The other thing I, I try and do is mentally to weight my re reading, reading. So much of the time when I'm reading the text, I am noticing possible potential patterns and I just register them as like really skinny branches on a tree. I'm not going to put any weight on them whatsoever, but I'm going to explore and see where they go. And so I'm curious to see whether anything more will develop from them. So a lot of my reading of scripture is exploratory and there's a sort of creative character to it. You're testing and developing a hypothesis. You're seeing what cumulative evidence you can discover for it but you're holding it very, very lightly. You're not putting any weight on it. And you're recognizing the great differences between patterns in scripture that are very pronounced, certainly in their main body. So for instance, the Exodus pattern in scripture is very pronounced. The theme of the, the woman and the serpent and the seed, that's a very prominent theme throughout scripture. But in specific instances, it can be very weak. And what we're trying to think about is how to develop a cumulative case that does not depend too much upon one single reading, like the weight of a tree can be distributed along a wide root system. So our readings of these themes can recognize the validity and importance of particular themes without trying to leave every bit of that weight upon specific instances of it. That allows us also a great 
deal more latitude to explore um, a particular motif without feeling the need to to cast our lot in with it completely. Um, it can be very exploratory and just be open to being proved wrong. And many of my readings have that character to them. It's hard to communicate that though, when you're engaging in these readings in public, people don't always recognize, okay, I'm, I'm trying this out for size. I want you to push back against it. I want to see if it withstands challenge. And I don't see all the position the positions from which it could be challenged, which is why I'm airing it. I'm hoping that people are going to challenge it and then I'll be able to hone it. Yeah, I find that incredibly helpful, especially the pushback. I mean, I guess most people, or what I like most people, am, I guess, attached to my own ideas. You know, if you see something and then you just naturally have an attachment to it. But I hope that I don't sort of cling on to them too tightly and a number i have sort of abandoned on on the strength of people saying look you know um it may be true that no one else has seen this james but there, there may be a reason why why no one else has seen it you know um i.e because it's not there and so i have found that sort of feedback to be very useful because actually i don't find myself a particularly good um judge of my own connections i have some that I particularly like but in general I, I tend to get more uh sure of them as other people see them and, and confirm them i remember a while ago i was listening to um uh an interview with a comedian uh tim vine who I, I like a great deal and the guy was saying to him well how do you write good jokes and he said i don't know he said all i know how to do is write jokes um and he said i then just go to like a local uh, pub or comedy club and just read them all out in a fairly deadpan voice, just like hundreds of, of them and see how people <laughs> respond to them. And he, he said that you can never until you sort of try these things out with a crowd of people, get a, a sense beforehand as, as to how well they're going to go down. Now, I mean, I do think this probably uh, slightly more science and objectivity to um, trying out an intertextual connection th than just sort of... Although intertextual connections are very much like jokes. Um, yeah, they are. I mean, there's not a science of, a straightforward science of humour. It, it's very much an art and it depends upon intertextuality. Yeah, that's, that's right. And actually, this one that we're talking about with um, uh, Ahab and Absalom actually was one I wasn't particularly convinced of initially when I sort of first floated it, but it seemed to go down very well, um, with with the exception of you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and so that sort of strengthened me to, to some extent in, in it. And, and um, uh, so, yeah, I, I want to be in a position where I'm not clinging too tightly to these um things and as you say the more weight you load on a given type um uh, unjust weight that is i think the um the more you'll be prone to clinging to it too tightly because you you will feel that if you uh, abandon it then some whole chunk of your theology has has fallen down along with it that's always the danger of bringing a system to the text um, the text needs to be able to push back. And I find I'm constantly rereading texts that I thought I'd understood. And then I realize, okay, there's more here going on here. And there's a whole set of connections I'd never considered 
that may pull things in a very different direction. And there are certain texts in the back of my mind that I'm constantly revisiting because there's so much going on there that's just tantalizing. I can feel it. I can see some of the connections, but I just don't have a clue what to make of them. A great example is um, the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. There is just so much going on in that text. Mm. And yet I am, I'm only seeing a fraction of it. And I, I know that there are connections. I'm virtually certain there are connections with some texts of which I just don't have a clue what the meaning would be. I mean, why would that particular text, would there be a connection? Mm. And that's one of those examples where I think you want to work it through in the Old Testament. And so you want to think about its connections, perhaps to uh, an incident in Samson's life or to Ruth's story and to see what it's doing in the Old Testament rather than trying to short circuit and make a very quick uh, leap to the New Testament and, and just to sort of say something like, and all this is redeemed in Matthew's genealogy and job done. I've often compared it to the experience of wandering through terrain, following in a careful itinerary, and you're looking at the path ahead of you. And at certain points, you have a more elevated spot where you can look back and see part of the place that you've walked. But much of your view is obscured through trees and through rocks and other things like that. But you're working towards a great peak. And then as you follow the path that leads you up this mountain, and eventually you reach the top and your whole itinerary unfolds as a unity. You're seeing the entirety of the path that you walked, but also you're seeing the path in a more immediate way, in the same way that you'd see it as you're walking it. You're seeing the specific steps ahead of you, or in this case, behind you. And that's very much the experience that I have reading the biblical text. As I'm reading through the Old Testament, I'm often reaching vantage points where I can see connections with parts of the path that I've walked before. But the movement to Christ is not an airlifting from one particular point in the itinerary just to the top of the peak. Rather, it's a following through of the entire itinerary to the point where I can see that itinerary as a unity from the different perspective of the mountain peak. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a helpful, helpful analogy. Thank you very much for joining me, James. This has been a very stimulating conversation and I'm hoping that we'll be able to continue it talking about some other topics. I'm particularly interested in working through some of your discussion of the temple of Ezekiel and its connections with John's gospel because there is some weird and wonderful stuff going on there that I think opens up a lot about the gospel and also the um, prophecy of Ezekiel. But bringing together some of the themes, I think this just the process of having conversations like this is so integral to the task of reading scripture and encouraging these sorts of conversations is it's one of the means by which we become better at our reading we learn from each other our readings are tested by each other we're not always the best judges of our readings that's certainly been my experiences like yours in that respect and it's one area where I've enjoyed the Opolis, for instance, the conversations that we have on the podcast and elsewhere, where we're constantly bouncing off each other and strengthening our own readings through other people's input. 
But how do you think, just in conclusion, um, we can, if you had just a couple of thoughts of how specific steps that people could take to improve their reading of scripture, um, do you have any suggestions? Um, So specifically in terms of the um, intertextual dimension of it, um, I I like to, um, well, as I guess I've said in part, um, use connections which are quite, I don't know how to describe it, tight or specific or a connection which is which is not too general to work everywhere. So if the pattern I've seen is something like a, um, a, a fall and then a lifting up afterwards, um, and then I start linking together a big string of 10 or 12 texts which seem to have this pattern that strikes me as, as just too general to be uh, to be helpful you know and, and so um, I, I'm wanting to be I guess led by the text and thinking what kind of things the writer is is directing me towards in, in particular and and what kind of things he, he's not directing me uh, towards. So um, a, a narrative which, uh, well, narratives have their own sort of flow o- over time and a few sentences can cover 20 years and then one verse can kind of describe just basically one action w- with a whole load of verbs and he fell and he slept and he died and there he lay fallen dead or, or something where you've just got this uh, a fairly long string of verbs in in hebrew which are just describing one thing and and so i'm i'm trying to use um those sorts of considerations to think where is the author um trying to get me to focus my um attention because otherwise i feel almost that i could do typology just with a newspaper or, 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 or something you know I, i'm sure i could find intertextual connections there and so i'm, I'm, I'm wanting to say okay this is um uh, scripture and so i'm wanting to find sort of where the human author and ultimately the the divine author is leading me rather than which is easy to do um rather than to have a a system have a few little um uh shapes that i like to fit things into and then kind of allowing that to really straight jacket the particularities of, of of the text i think that's yeah that's something i found very helpful myself and i've i've wondered about this in terms of the retrieval of certain pre-modern readings of scripture that are very alert to analogies and typology and figural reading and maybe particularly within um, Jewish contexts where they bring very clear skills of recognizing this intertextuality. But as moderns, we come with the skills and the instincts and the um, forms of attention that have been trained by a grammatical historical method. And I think at the very best, what we're trying to do is to bring those disciplines to the service of the sort of instincts that a pre-modern reader of the text would have. And so those instincts are backed up with the extra witness of 
this is in the text itself. The way that this is worded is very clearly um, unusual. There aren't many instances of this, but this particular phrase or these particular details in conjunction with each other show a clear literary pattern that's elusive towards some event that's occurred previously. And that I think gives a way of pushing back against the arbitrariness that often comes with that more general approach that you describe. There's a discipline where if it is there, you will see very clear evidence within the text and that evidence, there are ways that you can weight it, whether it's very strong or whether it's weak and more um, potentially fanciful. And that is something that I've always seen myself as trying to do to bring the instincts of a pre-modern and maybe patristic reader or more Jewish reader of the text um, to the task of a more grammatical historical approach that's determined by Reformation instincts and the concern that we do not make the text into a wax nose. Yeah, I, I think part of that is cultural, as you say. I think part of it is linguistic as well. Often rabbinic works will identify very um, close grammatical similarities um, between two texts just because they're hugely familiar with the text of scripture in a way which most western readers aren't you know most western readers won't probably make their way through the old testament two or three times in in hebrew each year or something whereas um i've no idea how much the average rabbinic commentator would have done that but i would assume they would do that lots and lots in part because they weren't a huge number of books uh, available particularly sort of earlier on in in history and i find that kind of very close linguistic association to be so helpful and i think it just comes through patiently reading the, the text whether it's the new testament in greek or the old in in hebrew um just as, as much as possible it, it's not the kind of thing which um uh which just word stud word searches on a computer is always that helpful in because often it might involve the sort of rearrangement of a, a word a, a sort of pun which isn't that searchable on a computer or just a very close bit of um syntax grammatically which again isn't so easy to to search on and and so i think that's a, a really good way of looking at where where the author is leading you and the sort of practices of reading that they would have would be far more ordered towards the ear reading aloud and also reading in company where it's not just an individual interpreter but there's a group of people constantly testing each other's readings and collaboratively arriving at deeper insight mm. which kind of brings to mind how how much of a long-term project this is i mean i've very much changed in the way in which I read scripture over the last sort of five years and probably will over the next five years as, as well. And I, I hope that's changed um, for the good, you know, in a positive direction, but it's, it's quite um, tempting to think, okay, I want to know what's going on in this passage. If I just sit down with it and really go into it in detail over the next couple of days, um, I will get there. But I just don't think gains in our understanding of scripture come that quickly, um, no matter how much we 
try and cram into like a, a given day or, or something. I think there are some things which just come over time. Yes, and meditation upon scripture, not just the task of um, reading it and then moving on, but the task of reading, rereading, rereading again, and having it playing in your mind for the day and little things um, coming to mind in terms of connections and then leaving it to simmer for months. Um, that's the way I've found it to be most fruitful to read the text. And I've often discovered many months after a first experience of getting into a text in some depth that some of the insights actually come to fruition um, and it's taken many months to get there but it's been in the background alongside lots of other texts that I've put into a mix. Hmm. A final point I think I, I might want to add is that I find reading critical commentaries to be quite helpful. Now I wouldn't recommend that to everyone there are various people in my church or I would say it's just not a good idea to to read certain types of material like that um but I think if you're sort of um fairly well established in in terms of what you think about the bible and a uh, and a happy recognizing sort of the way in which a lot of that just comes from a completely different um worldview instead of presuppositions um I think if you're yeah if you're in that category then critical commentaries can be very enlightening in that sense because writers like that are often seeing things which I don't see and have missed and then can kind of rework in uh, a more evangelical um, framework. And I, I found that to be really, really useful. Um, often that's then a case of disentangling the, the data which I, I see as the sort of textual similarities from the interpretation and that's been my experience too. I think that takes us back to where we started, that there's something about the way that we view scripture and its truthfulness that can give us a com confidence when we come to the weirdness of the text and the seeming um, incongruous details or the tensions and the apparent contradictions, that we're not scared of them and we can actually lean into them and explore them. Whereas many evangelicals, I think, lack that um, patience and the ability to live with some of the tensions for a while and explore them. And as a result, prematurely harmonize what is actually an invitation to a banquet. And that's increasingly I'm, I'm thinking in terms of scriptures giving us these invitations if we're attentive to it. And if we follow them, I think we'll find a great many feasts. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, James, for joining me and Lord willing, we'll be able to continue this conversation soon. If you want to listen to more conversation with James, I highly recommend following the Theopolis podcast where we have many conversations about texts. We're currently going through the book of Jonah, which is a rich and bountiful text. There's so much going on there, so much intertextuality, and it's within a book that seems so much simpler on the surface than you would expect for a text that holds so much in terms of its treasures. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk again soon.